Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. We're walking through a series really on who we are as a church. And as a church, we've said that we are committed to Christ-centered worship, life-on-life discipleship that grows believers, leaders, and churches. And today we're going to kind of zero in, hone in on this idea that we are a church committed to Christ-centered worship and what that is. So if you will look with me at Revelation 5, we'll begin reading, we'll read the entire chapter 14 verses, Revelation 5 verse 1. It's a continuation really of what Jim read earlier. John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp with, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's really an amazing scene that God gave John a window into heaven and all that's going on here. As a reminder of where we are headed, we've been talking through a vision for the change that God is doing and really now understanding our identity and the mission that God has given us we're going to be working through a sense of our core values and, and what those are. And so last week, we began kind of looking at this together. We're going to kind of work our way from the center out. So this week, we're looking at Christ-centered worship. Next, we will look at life-on-life discipleship. And then in the ensuing weeks, we'll kind of work around what frames how we do these things. But as we begin today, I want to remind some of you or tell others of you about a really significant moment in, the nation, in our nation's history. Now, this was actually the year before I was born, so I don't remember it, but I actually feel like I was there because I've heard about it so many times. The year is 1980, and the Winter Olympics are being held right here in the United States in upstate New York in Lake Placid, New York. Now, if you know anything about that Olympics, and particularly this team here, you know what happens next is absolutely unbelievable. You see, it was right at the height of the Cold War, and right in the middle of this, the USSR 
the Soviet Union and the U.S. of A, the United States of America, clash in the Olympics. Now, the USSR, the four-time defending gold medal champions in ice hockey. Their team is full of grown men, professionals who have done this a long time. United States, they're a bunch of upstarts. College kids, amateurs, they really have no business playing on the same ice rink as the Soviet Union. And yet, when they meet in the medal round, it's a very incredibly tense match. If you know anything about ice hockey, I don't know a lot other than this. There are three periods. After the first period, it's tied two to two. A surprise. After the second period, the Soviet Union scores, and they're leading three to two in the final match. And it's in the final period that the United States scores to tie the game, scores to go ahead. And on that day, unbelievably, these bunch of upstart kids and Herb Brooks, their coach, upset the four-time mighty defending world champions in the middle of the Cold War. And all that it means for the United States is unbelievable. If you ever watch the clip, if you haven't, you should go on YouTube and watch it. And perhaps even more famous than the game is Al Michaels' famous call at the end of the game. Because he just kind of is screaming, the crowd screaming at the top of their lungs, and he says, do you believe in miracles? And then he shouts out, yes. And they mob each other on the center ice, and it's just pandemonium. And as I thought this week of the scene that we've seen in heaven, and think about what a celebration is, I thought, that's a picture of it. That's a small picture of what it will be like when we gather around the throne, we're all there and we're all singing with thousands upon thousands of people and we're singing glory to the lamb that was slain. And on that day, the pandemonium that broke, broke out in 1980 will be a small picture of what we're all going to experience around the throne of Jesus. In Revelation 5, we find ourselves in the middle of a crisis. God the Father sits on the throne and holds in his hand a scroll. And this scroll holds his plan for the ages, his plan for history. And they need someone to open the scroll. And this call goes out, who can open the scroll? And there's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who can open this scroll. And by this time, John is so ammed up by all that he's seen that he cannot believe this. He breaks out crying. Who is worthy to open the, the scroll and break its seals? Now, when we were um, talking this week, we were talking about the animals in this passage, and, and one of our daughters said, well, there are a bunch of seals in this passage. Well, these seals aren't like those kind of seals. Or, 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 this is a different kind of seal. This seal isn't something we do a lot. In fact, today, if we're sealing an envelope, we either tear off the adhesive or lick it and kind of, kind of seal it that way. But historically, really for 4,000 years, seals have been used to mark things of particular importance. What you're looking at here is the, the crest of the royal family in England. And so if you get a letter with this seal on it, either you're important or you shouldn't open it because it marks it as a particularly important document. And so the seal here is the seal of the king of heaven. God himself has sealed this, and John tells us it's sealed seven times, which marks the importance, the completeness of this document. So when John hears there's this scroll, but you can't see it because no one can open it. Verse 4, he breaks down weeping. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. So there's this utter despair on John's part, and in the midst of his despair, there's this note of hope. One of the 24 elders cries out to him, weep no more. And it's right here that we begin to get the picture, the vision of Jesus that tells us what makes Jesus worthy of worship. 
We see four reasons here this morning that Jesus is worthy of worship when no one else is. And the first reason is that Jesus is the one who conquers. Verse 5. When the elder speaks up, he tells John to stop crying and he tells him why. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. We have a picture of the conquering greatness of Christ. Jesus is the lion of Judah. At the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, Jacob is pronouncing blessings on his 12 sons who will become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as he does this, he gives a blessing to each son just before he dies, and his blessing for Judah is significant. He says, Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah, crouched as a lion. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You see, the lion of Judah will be the great king, the conquering hero who defeats all of his enemies for all ages. For centuries, God's people have looked for this one. For this king, the conquering king, and the next words connect these dots, the Lion of Judah is the root of David. God's people had hoped that David would be that king. But it is a greater son of David who would be the eternal king, the ultimate warrior king. Kings bow the knee to no one. And yet Philippians 2 tells us that all kings will bow the knee to this one, this king, this lion, this king, the root of David. Now, if we're picturing what it means to conquer, if we're picturing what it means to be great, we have a particular image of that in mind, don't we? In fact, you don't even have to train children. Our son already knows this. In fact, right now, he's kind of at a stage, he's three, three and a half, and as you walk around, you say hi to him. A lot of times, people will say to him, oh, you're so cute. He says, I'm not cute, I'm bid." big. Joseph knows that when it comes to power, big, great, strong might, that's where power comes from. And so he walks around saying, boys are bid, not girls. He's, you know, he's figuring out, you know, he's here, he's going to be top dog as the youngest kid in our house. He's figured out that size and power matter. Muscle, size, numbers. And we do this in our culture, too. We even kind of create mythical heroes that represent this. We call them superheroes that are bigger and more powerful and faster than is humanly possible. They're superhuman. But when John hears that this lion is the king, he's no doubt surprised by what he sees because this lion conquers by dying. John hears about a conquering lion. He lifts his eyes. So he hears a lion. He lifts his eyes. And what does he see? He sees, verse 6, a lamb standing. This has got to be odd. John hears lion. He looks up, and there's a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, the language is familiar enough to us that it's possible to miss how vivid this, this moment would have been. You see, this is a slaughtered lamb. Its, its throat is slit. When they, when they slay a lamb for sacrifice, they cut its throat, and its lifeblood literally bleeds out on the altar. It's kind of a gruesome picture. But, but this bloody mess of a lamb is standing. In other words, he has been slain, but he stands alive. It's impossible what John sees here. This, this amazing juxtaposition of two pictures— the sacrificial death of Jesus slain, slaughtered on the, on the altar. And yet it stands there before him for everyone to worship. 
The person standing there is none other than the slain Lamb of God who has risen and conquered sin and death and hell. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and he sees Jesus coming to him. And do you remember what his words are when he sees Jesus? He says, behold what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The central goal of Jesus' mission is to rescue sinners. To experience death is to experience grief. And yet Scripture tells us that when Jesus dies, it's a reason for worship. And Jesus' death, more than any other image here, is why we worship him. Look at the language of this section. Look at verse 6. A lamb standing as it had been slain. Verse 9, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's this repeat, the lamb died, he died, he died, he was slain, he was slain, he was slain. It's the death of the lamb that shows how much the lamb deserves worship. To worship someone is to declare their worth. To declare how reverent we ought to be toward that person. Robert Burns is a famous 18th century Scottish poet, and he wrote a poem, My love is like a red, red rose newly sprung in June. And perhaps some of you pirated that and wrote it one day to your sweetheart. But when we think of reasons to love or adore someone, we think of things like a rose newly sprung in June. But if we were to think of why we love or adore someone, death is never the first thing in my mind. Death is a separation. Death is pain. Death is a rending. There's, if there's one characteristic I would think of that wouldn't make a list, it's that the person died, and that's why I love them. They're gone. They're not here. I mean, even if we don't blame someone for dying, that death is a separation. Yet the central reason that Jesus is worthy of worship is because he died. Remarkable. And his death is no quiet passing. The description here is of a violent slaughter. So why then is Jesus' death a reason for love and worship? Jesus' death is different from all other deaths because Jesus' death alone saves. Tomorrow, I'll be speaking at a funeral. A young family, a couple young kids. And they thought they were welcoming a third child, a daughter, into their family only to find out a week and a half ago that this daughter had died. So this young mom and dad spent the night in the hospital delivering a dead baby, held their daughter in their arms, spent the night trying to sleep with what they had thought they would welcome, the sounds of crying and little baby moving around and That baby entered this world dead. They sobbed when they expected joy. Death is the great enemy. Every time it shows up, it absolutely rots. Sometimes it shows up before a young one even has the opportunity to experience life. Sometimes it shows up at the end of a long and full life, but every time it shows up, it is the great enemy. I've stood by the bedside of very old people as they've died. 
comforted a parent in the loss of a child. And it doesn't matter how you experience death. It is a curse every time it shows up. It's a reminder that things should not be this way. We grieve death. We're angered by death. We fear death. We flee death. We don't celebrate death. But the death of the Lamb is a reason for celebration. I mean, if Jesus' death is like other deaths, then it's just death. But the reason that the slaughter of this lamb is a cause for celebration is because it's not just a death. It is also victory. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus has authority over all things, and he puts all things under his feet. And then what does Paul say? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death itself. Jesus, the conquering slain lamb, will destroy death. It's a beautiful line in the middle of the song, Power of the Cross. Death itself is crushed to death. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, the Lord of life stepped from the grave, walked out of his own power in new life. The reason we praise the lamb for dying is because by dying, he conquered death itself. His death is unlike other deaths. And in doing so, he accomplishes salvation for us. And this salvation isn't for a few. It's not for his three beloved. It's not for his 12 disciples. His salvation is for the entire world. Look again at verse 9. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. Jesus saves, and he saves from every corner of the globe. It doesn't matter if you're born here or somewhere across the sea and somewhere we can't imagine. Jesus' death is for our redemption. I love the way the Newsboys song puts it. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, tongue, every nation. A love song born of a grateful choir. God is calling people for his name from every nation. And perhaps this morning he's calling your name. You know, it's one thing to know that Jesus saves. It's one thing to know that God loves. It's one thing to know that God is working redemption for every tribe and language and people and nation. But it's a different thing to know that God loves you. That God's calling your name. That the lamb died for you. That this blood isn't some imaginary blood, some imaginary death. Perhaps this morning God is calling your name. Perhaps you've been running from God and this morning God is calling you. Would you turn from your sin? Would you run to the Lamb? Would you cry out to God for mercy, for God to save you? Jesus will save anyone who comes to him. He just doesn't save us just from sin and death. He also saves us for an amazing inheritance Jesus shares. Verses 9 and 10. If you've got your Bible, we're going to do a, a look at a couple passages here. Look back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I want us to see a couple things here in Scripture ourselves. In Exodus 19, God is in the middle 
of making a law covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20 is rather famous because it's there that, that we have the Ten Commandments listed out for us. But in Exodus 19, Moses hasn't yet gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. At the beginning of chapter 19, the Lord makes an amazing promise. Look at Exodus 19, verse 5. The Lord says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. So the way this works is, if Israel perfectly obeys God's voice, they will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's the promise, Exodus 19. Now, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's near the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. So in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who have been scattered by persecution. They're all over the place because uh, the Roman Empire and civic leaders have, have chased the church. And he tells us that Jesus Christ is the living cornerstone on whom we can build our lives. And in 1 Peter 2, he, he makes a remarkable statement. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, Peter says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he makes the same promise now to the church. You will be a royal priesthood a holy nation. So how did the Israelites think that they would become this kind of nation? By their obedience. Yet they failed and never really lived that out. Yet when we arrive in 1 Peter, Peter says this has already happened. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. How is that already fulfilled? Not by our obedience, if you're like me. It is fulfilled rather because you have, Peter says, you have received mercy. It's not something you've earned, it's something God has given you. In other words, Jesus has the right to rule all things as prophet, priest, and king, and then he takes what is his, what he has earned, and he shares it with us. And then Revelation 5, where we've been, colors it in a little bit more for us. Look back there at verse 9. Worthy are you, John, uh, the, the Lord says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We are priests by the blood of Christ, royal priests, and now, God says, we reign with Jesus. 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 5 teach us that Jesus takes every square inch of the whole domain of everything, and he says, this is now yours, because it's mine. He shares it with us. Jesus takes what we could never earn, never deserve, and he shares it. So how does this work? It works by Jesus earning what could never be ours by our own works and giving it to us by the worth of his work. Because Jesus, the risen king, is king. We have the power to dominate sin rather than be dominated by sin. Okay, so if this is what Jesus has done, let's think through what this means for our worship. First, we worship the Father, Son, and Spirit through the blood of Jesus. We're committed to Christ-centered worship because Jesus is the only way to God. The blood of Christ is how we approach the throne. He sort of taps us into the power of the full trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
The beginning of Revelation 4, which Jim read earlier, shows us that the Spirit takes John to the throne room. And the Father rules from the throne, and the Lamb makes the way there. The Son opens the throne room of God through His sacrifice. So we worship Father, Son, and Spirit through the blood of Jesus. The Father reigns, works, and cares. The Son redeems, rescues, and intercedes. And the Spirit convicts, changes, and empowers us. Because of this, we worship God alone. Now, this might seem really obvious at first glance, but it's, it's actually not. There are times when I've, when I've been thinking I'm having a conversation about worship, and I realize we're not having a conversation about, we're having two different conversations at the same time. Because we worship God and God alone. So when we call something a worship service, there's only one being in the universe worthy of worshiping. Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So when we gather for worship, it's really clear what we're here for. To worship God. So we honor people and institutions, but our worship service is for the glory of God alone. We engage in vibrant, intentional corporate worship according to God's word. We want to be characterized by vibrant, unified, Christ-centered worship. The worship of the church isn't for people to watch and someone else to do. It's for all of us to engage in. We all pray when we pray. We all sing when we sing. We all listen and engage and submit to the word together. When you think about worship wars, what are worship wars almost always about? They're almost always, not always, but almost always about style. And what does God say about style? Not much. We spend our whole lives arguing about things that God really hasn't spoken to, and there are a lot of things that God has been really, really clear about. I mean, there are churches that are highly liturgical, and churches where liturgy is like a four-letter word. But the point is that our arguments are so often about style because it's about what we want. But that's not where we start. We start with God's word and we work our way out from the word to our worship. So we read the word, pray the word, sing the word, see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we preach the word. The reason that's so important is because God tells us in his word how we should worship him. So we want to be deliberate and intentional and, and try to follow the word in the way we worship. Because ultimately, worship isn't about us. This is where it gets really hard, because our attitude in worship reveals what's in our hearts. Now, I was thinking about this. We're, we're talking about, you know, corporate worship here, but I was convicted by this this week at a situation where I was uh, frustrated, short with one of my kids. They had interrupted something. I mean, what, what I was doing was good, and I, I didn't lose it or anything like that, but I was thinking about my frustration toward that child. And I was thinking about what our actions reveal about our worship, and I was thinking about that. The reason I got upset in that moment, because I got an idol and it's me. <laughs> It's my time. It's my goal. It's my agenda. And, and, and you're interrupting this. And in that moment, that's a worship problem. And our attitude when we come to worship often reveals who our God really is. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, at home with our kids. But when we remember worship is for God, not us, how would it change our perspective if rather than asking, what did I get out of the service? What songs did I sing? What, what made me happy? What if we said... God, help me worship you gladly today. Like Romans 12, I'm bringing my entire life as an offering. 
as a sacrifice, as an act of living worship you. Worship. Just help me, rather than think about what makes me glad, God, help me worship in a way that makes you glad. Worship isn't about us. If we come thinking about what we're going to consume, what we're going to get, we're always going to leave unhappy because you can't please hundreds of people at the same time. But if we come gladly offering sacrifices of worship to God, everyone can leave happy because we're here for him. I was reading this week, and I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis puts it. He's the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He said, as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you're not dancing but learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware our attention would have been on God. What if the thing that shaped our thinking, that shaped our conviction, that shaped our experience, that shaped our gathered worship was a mind to exalt and glorify the name of God alone? What if we came determined not to ask the question, did that make me happy? And determined to offer as a living sacrifice our worship to the Lamb who offered himself as a sacrifice for us? What if worship became about God, not about us? What if worship became our collective voices raised in praise to God? What if worship became about our collective recognition that we're sinners who don't deserve God's grace, who don't deserve God's favor, who don't deserve God's love, who don't deserve God's mercy, and have still received it? We deserve hell, and God has given us grace and eternal life. And we worship God out of a grateful, joyful heart, just thankful to be here and have the opportunity to offer God a little in return for all that he has given us. God is a God worth worshiping. So let's commit to worship the triune God of the universe through the blood of the Lamb to join this song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He alone is worthy of our worship. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.